You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Okay, so just to put it in context, the, uh, this elderly couple are sheltering under a, a tree in a, in a rainstorm as they cross um, this kind of ancient Britain, a, a, quite a wild, untamed landscape. But here they're sheltering from the storm under a tree, and this is a part of their conversation. What are you saying, princess? How can our love wither? Isn't it stronger now than when we were foolish young lovers? But Axel, she said, we can't even remember those days or any of the years between. We don't remember our fierce quarrels or the small moments we enjoyed and treasured. We don't remember our son or why he's away from us. We can make all those memories come back, he said. Besides, the feeling in my heart for you will be there just the same, no matter what I remember or forget. Don't you feel the same, princess? I do, Axel, but then again, I wonder if what we feel in our hearts today isn't like these raindrops still falling on us from the soaked leaves above, even though the sky itself long stopped raining. I'm wondering if, without our memories, there's nothing for it but for our love to fade and die. God wouldn't allow such a thing, Princess. Axel said this quietly, almost under his breath for he had himself felt an unnamed fear welling up within him. Kazuo Ishiguro is the author of The Remains of the Day, When We Were Orphans, and Never Let Me Go. His newest novel is The Buried Giant. Thank you for joining me, Ish. Well, thank you very much for having me back here. This is a, such an interesting novel. It takes the usual fantasy trope of a young man starting out on a journey and discovering his life and turns it exactly upside down. And I thought that was an interesting decision on your choice. Talk about creating the world, and in particular creating the two characters who drive the narrative, Axel and Beatrice. Well, they're two different things. You know, the, the world and the characters, uh, for me, come at very different points in the writing process. You know, I had the characters, well, let's say I had the relationship, if not the individual characters, you know, right from the start. I wanted this to be um, a love story, not in the sense of you know how do two people come together and declare their love for each other, which is what we usually call a love story. They should be called courtship stories or something. I think you know this is what I thought. Uh, you know, this is like a real love story. It's about what happens in the you know the decades after they have come together. You know how how they keep that love alive and um, uh, through all the changes. And in particular, um, you know, I wanted to write a story about a situation where you know the the couple have lost their shared memories because of some strange thing that's happening in the land and and for them at the personal level this is a kind of a there's a real fear um, as as expressed in in the, the my little passage that I was reading i mean um they they fear that if they lose their shared memories their their love will disappear and so they go on a, you want to call it a quest? Yeah, it's a quest. They go on a long journey to try and find some of the people who who bring back those memories, namely their son, you know, their missing son. 
But um, as 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 time goes on, they fear something else. A new fear starts to develop. That if they if their memories all come back, the bad ones will come back with the good ones, and maybe their love is not strong enough to withstand the resuscitation, the revival of those bad memories. One of the things I thought you handled so well in this book is the the prose is really beautiful, and it you create characters who are so noble and likable, yet they aren't overly so. And I think that's a fine line to cross. So talk about creating the, the prose, the way these people speak, because it's almost like uh, passages from a parable. Yeah, I, I, I very much wanted the language not to feel naturalistic. You know, I, I, not even like the, um, I, I suppose, the more deliberate kind of prose in in my in books like the remains of the day which which used a quite a a stiff formal prose i i wanted to some extent evoke um yeah these older texts um you know from like you've stumbled across something <laughs> centuries old or something i mean it, it was a kind of affectation of mine but i i i knew as soon as i had made that decision to set a book uh, back back in the 5th century in in a britain before even the english have arrived that I would have to face this problem. How how would people speak to each other in my book? And this was part of the, the reason why I had to kind of abandon my first attempt to write this book. Um, I'd got quite a long way into it, and uh, I showed my wife. Uh, I'd written about six or seven pages, and uh, and my wife told me I had to start again from scratch. You know, um, uh, you know, I asked her what, you know, what she meant by this, what, which aspects I needed to change. She said, no, just you have to absolutely start from scratch. And she wasn't referring to the concept of the book or the ideas behind it. She was talking about the the, the dialogue, um, the language that was used in the dialogue. So, But this does become a real issue. You know, I, I, I did not want a, a kind of a free-flowing kind of modern uh, kind of dialogue. I... I I wanted it to be stilted. I wanted the sense that the um, behind the English language I'm using, there is another older foreign language, the language of the Britons of that time. Um, and so the second time round, when I worked, you know, when I recovered myself and uh, um, I found the energy to to start the thing again from scratch, um, I I did the opposite of what I was doing the first time uh, in terms of the the language. Before I was trying to create a very ornamented language. Um, this time I I took the language that you and I speak now, and um, I tried to subtract instead of adding. And I found that by taking out certain words, just little words like that or from, or of, uh, where we would use them, um, it, it it became at the same time kind of simpler, but oddly kind of foreign. Um, and to my ears, I started to think there's a kind of a lyricism, that it, all of its own, um, uh, and so that what that's what I was listening for, kind of a, a an odd kind of stilted lyricism that I wanted. And that must have helped you also create the characters in you as well. Once you're speaking in a new language, yeah, I I don't um, I personally don't think that much about individual characters. Um, I used to you know, earlier when I was writing novels, but for about the last you know twenty years or so, 
I, I've, the more I write, the, the less I think about individual characters in isolation, uh, and I instead focus on relationships. I had this kind of eureka moment, um, literally a kind of eureka moment when I was just doing something else, and I thought, huh, maybe my writing life would become much easier, you know, um, uh, because I like like a lot of people, I used to agonize about you know building up individual characters, giving them backstories, making them more colorful, giving giving them kind of eccentricities that that would endear them to readers or repulse them or whatever. Um, but then I I had this idea. I thought, well, actually, as a writer, I'm not really interested in them one by one. I'm interested in how they relate to each other. So I started to ask questions, the same questions I used to ask about characters, about the relationships in my books. You know, I, I, would, I would actually, if I've written a passage I'd, and something was emerging, I'll, I'll pull out the relationship like a little kind of wriggling creature, you know, centipede, and, and look at it and ask myself, well, look, this, this master-pupil relationship or this... You know, sibling relationship. Is this just the usual standard issue thing that we've seen over and over again in every kind of story for eternity? Is this a complete cliche? You know, never mind how colorful the individual characters are. Is the relationship interesting? Is it a three-dimensional relationship or just a flat relationship that doesn't move beyond first base? You know, and and I and I became more and more drawn to shaping my relationships, so, you know, that, that they should turn, develop, surprise. Um, and I, I remembered that uh, thing that Ian Forster had said to distinguish you know, uh, you know, two-dimensional characters from three-dimensional ones. The three-dimensional ones were ones that surprised you and changed, but surprised you convincingly. And that that's how they got their third dimension. Um, and I, I kind of always thought that about relationships. You know, the relationship should surprise, but surprise convincingly. And I, I, since then, I, I kind of, I, I don't tend to write from life. I, I, I certainly don't put real people into my books. But in a, in a, if I'm guilty of doing that kind of thing at all, I, I do observe relationships around me. You know, sometimes I, I observe relationships in movies or books. But, but you know, I, I've become much more sensitive in the last 20 years since I've been thinking of writing in this way, just observing relationships that I encounter, even you know, sometimes casually, sometimes ones that I know. And so when I write a book, particularly you know, Never Let Me Go, uh, The Buried Giant, to some extent The Remains of the Day, they're, they're very much written around constructing the relationships and the characters are, are really the people on either end of the relationship and they take care of themselves. As I was reading this book, the experience I had was that it really did remind me in a lot of Never Let Me Go, but <clears throat> only in that in both books, the character's experience of the world and the relationships that we see unfold are fantastic in that they're, we realize they're being constantly invented by the people who experience them as much as anything is happening to them from the outside. It's also happening from the inside as well. I guess, I guess that's right, yes. I mean, yeah, I mean, in both cases, you know, there are couples and, and they, they are caught in some kind of um, um, cruel environment, Um you know, the, you know, Kathy and Tommy and Never Let Me Go are given this this kind of quite strong 
cruel fate. But I think that's very perceptive what you say. A lot of what's happening it comes from within them. So it never let me go. I mean, the, tit- the title kind of says it all. It's A lot of the story is about the fact that they don't want to be separated. And that that request, Never Let Me Go, I mean, it's the title of an old jazz song, but as um, soon as I heard that title, on the, you know, I saw it on the back of a, a CD or something, and I thought, well, actually, that sums up exactly what I want at the heart of the novel that I'm writing. You know, um, because Never Let Me Go is an impossible request, and the person making such a request must know it's impossible when they request it. You can say please hold on to me for a long time. <laughs> but you can't say, never let me go. That, that carries with it some kind of desperate, unreasonable hope of never being separated for eternity. Um, and and that's what drives a lot of that relationship, I, I guess. you know, they, they, would ex- they just want a little bit of you know, time together, you know, a little bit more time together to express their love before the inevitability of of death or mortality overtakes them. And the same is true of the couple in The Buried Giant. They will probably accept death, but that what they fear is separation. And and they, they feel that there is something so special about their love. Surely they qualify for special treatment. You know, surely there's surely they can hope a little bit that for them Right, they'll accept death, but maybe they can go into death together. And if they can go into death together, you know, anything is acceptable. So, so a lot of the tension comes from, uh, as much from what 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 the uh, what the lovers, if you like, you know, build in their relationship, as from the from the fate that's been imposed on them from the uh, from the outside, the cruel outside world. You've designed a beautifully evocative, cruel outside world. And you mentioned fifth fifth century Britain. Uh, did you research that? Uh, to some extent, yeah. Um, and when I research things, there's two kinds of research. You know, there's the kind of a, <laughs> there's a kind of the historical research I, I have to do. You know, to to see if I'm going to really put my foot into something and say something very unfortunate or get something wrong. And actually, on that side, I was kind of reassured to find that there is a complete blank in British history between something like 410 AD and 490 AD. That's to say between the time when the Romans, who were occupying Britain as part of the Roman Empire, they withdraw when the Roman Empire is crumbling and leave a kind of a, 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 a kind of a, a disorganized mess behind right, because the whole infrastructure is gone. And between that moment in, in something like 410 AD and the time when the Anglo-Saxons who are who are landing in ever-increasing numbers from the European mainland and settling, they take over the country and become the English and eventually build England. Uh, but there there is this blank of almost a century that no historian really knows how to fill. Uh, there's a lot of speculation about that time. Uh, there's a feeling that there must have been some kind of tension if not outright kind of series of fight you know fights and civil wars you know between the indigenous britons and the and the migrants who are the people who become the english the anglo-saxons let's call them for short um so that was the landscape politically that that rather appealed to me because i was looking for some kind of location 
where an uneasy peace existed between two kind of ethnic factions who were occupying the same territory. Uh, but at least a generation back, that there had been traumatic kind of fighting and atrocities committed. Um, and I wanted a situation where this uneasy peace depended on uh, a kind of collective amnesia. As long as people agreed not to remember what had happened a generation back, you know, not to remember as a society um, and as a nation, then this peace might hold. But if anybody actually resuscitated those memories, probably all hell would break loose. Now, there are many situations like that we can think of today in the world. And there, there are many instances we can think of in recent history, you know, like Bosnia or Rwanda, where that peace broke down simply because, well, not simply because, but, you know, precisely because, you know, some people actually deliberately reawakened memories of great hatred and atrocity from a generation back. One of the things that, that you were talking about, I think the theme of memory and the theme of stories, how stories intertwine with memory and identity, I think this is a really an, a fascinating thing to, to watch as it unfolds in this novel. And you have a lot of fun with this. So uh, when you were crafting this, did you understand where you were going with it? Or did you just start out, start your lovers together at in the one village and set them on foot and, and head out into unknown territory for you as a writer as well as for them as a couple? No, I, I, I'm a, quite a, a kind of neurotic writer. I find it very difficult to to uh, write a novel without having a clear map. I mean, it, it, it's it's interesting. You know, this, some some of my you know, a lot of my stories do involve journeys. You know, uh, and people are literally physically journeying across countries or or whatever. Um, uh, the process of writing a novel is a bit like that. But I, you know, as a traveler, I, I would be the kind of traveler that, that has a lot of guidebooks and that neurotically checks <laughs> maps and things. Um, it, that's not to say I wouldn't deviate. You know, once I'm in a, in a town, you know, I, I, I might throw away my maps because I see a little alleyway that I think is rather attractive. I might go down there, you know. But I, I like to have a map from which I can deviate. And I never really go into the actual writing of the prose without having a pretty good idea of of where we're going. Um, and that, that that applies to yeah, how, you know, the, how the characters, the relationship develops. Um, so I, I knew the trajectory of this relationship, that you know, it, they, they're at the, towards the end of a long marriage. I say towards the end because they're getting old, one of them is ill. Um, and and they start off by wanting wanting their memories back. But as they go on, they start to fear the memories coming back. But towards the end, I wanted them to feel, surely, you know, we have to face this. You know, we want to see everything that happened to us. Because otherwise, our love will be will be based on some kind of false premise so so yeah let, let, let's let's try and be brave and see it all you know because that we really need to test our our love and surely our love is strong enough so i i had that trajectory of, of you know where what would happen to them in, in terms of attitude to to what they were trying to do you know even what they're trying to do is kind of unconscious you know they think they're just looking for their lost son 
Um, and that will explain a lot of things. They want to find their their lost son. You know, where is he? Why why isn't he with them? What happened? Um, but I guess the implication is you know, a lot of things will come back once that they find that lost son. But yeah, we get we get in, involved in this um, in the kind of the story. We discover why people's memories have been artificially repressed. Um, I guess uh, uh, this is a kind of ancient version of some kind of high tech uh, situation we, we can all think of, where some totalitarian state or some dictator has done something to people's minds through kind of high technology so that every time we we try and remember certain kinds of things you know we blank out um but this is some sort of ancient kind of fantasy version of that that world and so that 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 that's what they're uh, that's what they're dealing with but of course it has terrible imp- you know, personal imp- implications on their on their own lives well, when you mentioned fantasy, I thought you did a great job of creating a fantastic version of ancient Britain that feels real so that when the supernatural characters come out, when the supernatural beasts come out, and you do a great monster, and as a guy who likes monsters, thanks <laughs> for doing that. There's a number of really fun parts in here, too. Uh, did you pace those elements as you wrote the book? Or did you just let them flow as they spoke to the situation and the characters? I wasn't that conscious of um, you know who was supernatural, who wasn't. You know, after a while, I was in that world. Mm. When you were talking about researching the world you know, of the novel, I was talking before about the, the hard historical research. Of course, the the real research you have to do as a novelist is researching that imaginary world. And I can't go to libraries or. Um, you know, I can't look online to find out about that. I've got to just research the inside of my imagination until I figure out how that, what what the rules are. You know, if it's fantastical, if it deviates from normal reality, in what way does it do so? What are the new rules? If the if the rules that are, you know, if the physical and psychological rules that govern our present world are being abandoned, so what are the new ones? Yeah, I've got to work all of that out. So. So I have to do all of that. So I wasn't really thinking, oh yeah, you know, let's you know, let's bring on this kind of weird creature and that kind of weird creature. By the time I was writing this novel, the the lines between what what was kind of fantasy and what what was kind of normal had blurred for me because it was all real for me in that world. Because how I approached it was, whatever might have been a reasonable belief for somebody living in that time in a kind of pre-scientific age, if they you know, if they believed a whole bunch of stuff that we today would consider superstitious, but it was perfectly reasonable in a pre-scientific era like that, then I would allow those things to exist literally in my fictional world. That That was my kind of rule. So I wouldn't allow anything to happen. It wasn't a world in which, say, um, a, a spacecraft could land in front of their village, because that's outside of the kind of the, the the normal parameters of what an ordinary person would believe. But on the other hand, it seemed to me absolutely reasonable and normal for someone in that time, living in huddled little villages with kind of swathes of kind of dark moorland and wild stuff in between them and the next civilization, to believe in all kinds of things. And if, for instance, you somebody dear to you gets ill, you you know you, you need an explanation. You want an explanation, and 
somebody of that time, it seemed to me, it's absolutely intelligent to think, aha, you know, two months ago, something was moving around in our in our bedroom in in the dead of night, and I I think it was some pixie, and I think it was that pixie that brought my wife the illness, and that's why she's got sick today. That seems to me a perfectly kind of justified kind of belief for somebody of that time. So in my novel, I would allow that, you know, that to be there, literally. You know, because that way, I think all these things, you know, the fantastical elements, if you like, are expressions of, of very real emotions. They're explanations, they're projections of fears, they're projections of hopes that the people in this kind of world have. So they're very, to me, they're, they're absolutely essential. You know, they're, they're expressions of, of very deeply held things about being human. And that's why I need them there you know, in, in this world. And for me, that's what makes this world fun as well. I mean, it's, about, it's about real stuff. You know? Well, too, that's, I think, the power of these tropes is that they allow you to externalize these kind of emotions, but it, when you externalize them in the image of a pixie or an ogre or something else, it makes our experience of them a little more complex than saying, oh, I'm just sad or I was just happy or I was worried. It, the imagery of the fantastic informs our experience of the emotion in a way that makes the reading experience, I think, richer and more informative in a way that it speaks to us in a way that we don't quite get uh, literally, but we feel it in our hearts as readers. Yeah, I, I, I would hope so. I would hope so. You know, if I've pulled off some of the scenes successfully, then I'm, you know, that, that's precisely what I, what I want. It's a way of orchestrating emotions, uh, mm-hmm, exactly. of dramatizing them out there in, in, in active form, you know, so so yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, because I suppose in this kind of world, people are not conventionally as articulate. You know, they, they don't have the vocabulary of psychotherapy or whatever. To, so they can't sit in cafes and talk about their emotions for pages and pages. But yeah, they they can get trapped in trapped in some tunnel and think there's some kind of uh, very dangerous beast trapped underground with them. And what are they going to do? You know that 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 starts. That's another way of expressing. You know their fears or their, their, their need to defend each other to the end. You know? um, so, so for me, that's a, you know, it's an exciting way to operate. And I think, I think it's no coincidence that we, we've had fantastical, supernatural elements in stories probably ever since we sat around fires as cave people and, and told these stories. I mean, personally, I, you know, I, I kind of grew up as a child on all kinds of you know, Japanese folk tales and Samurai tales, you know, um, where these things coexist very, very kind of naturally, um, um, and so it, it's it's no it's, it's no big deal to me. I mean, it, uh, you know, I it's, I haven't traditionally used supernatural or fantastic elements in my stories. Or it's right way back at the beginning of my career, my first novel, there were I think supernatural elements. Um, I've always been interested in the ghost story. Um, mm-hmm. I love the mm, ghost story. Yeah, I think mm, mm. we're all haunted. Yeah. Mm. Now, uh, as I read this book, one of the things that struck me was how likable and how honorable all the characters are, even if they're not necessarily playing a positive role. And you do also a great job of having somebody who's honorable slide into a sense of kind of a, a, 
create a suspense when we can tell that they're maybe hiding something and but they're trying to be honorable about it. I, I think the the way you do this is wonderful. And I love the extra characters. I love uh, Whiston and Go- you bring in the Arthurian Gawain. So that's a lot of fun. With uh, You have a lot of fun with the Arthurian legends, post-Arthurian, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's the real back end of the <laughs> Arthurian era. Um, the character Sir Gawain is now an old man. He's the he's the youngest traditionally in the in the you know Arthurian stories. He's he's the youngest of the knights. He's the nephew of Arthur. He's usually a kid. Um, he appears in my story as the last surviving um, member of that that era. You know that magic circle. You know that that circle of knights, and uh, he kind of represents in my story because my story isn't really concerned with the. The, the really Arthurian legend, so much as um, the possible real figure on which the you know, legendary Arthur perhaps could have been based, you know. So, so my Sir Gawain is is some sort of last surviving leftover from a political regime that that has now you know, faded you know, as time has gone on. Um, and he just, in my mind, he's a little bit like some of these. Um, uh, Heroes, you know, aging heroes in some of my favorite Western movies. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, these all kind of Sam Peckinpah movies, or, or maybe John Wayne, the John Wayne character in John Ford's The Searchers. You know, these aging gunfighters who are kind of out of time. Their era, their violent era, has passed, but they just cannot move on into the more kind of civilized era. And they're they're outsiders. They're lonely figures riding, you know, by themselves with their horse. You know, their horse is their only friend by this point. All their companions have died, and it's just this lonely r- rider and horse in a big landscape under a big sky. And I think, I think that that figure I, I know from many great westerns. Um, you know, they're 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 kind of dangerous people. They're in some ways they're you know they're, the cause that they represent is repulsive. Um, but you kind of you can't help but admire them the the doggedness with which they will not lay down their old values, e- even if they're the only exemplars of those values now. Um, they just can't change their ways, and they'll 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 be true to the you know, and loyal to those values right to the very end. You know, Peckinpah is the wild bunch, or Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. I mean, they, they have these kinds of themes and. Um, I think uh, my vision of Sir Gawain has a lot to do with those kinds of characters, as well as certain kind of samurai figures that appear in uh, uh, Japanese movies as well. One of the things I loved in this book was that as Axel and Beatrice embark upon this journey through this this landscape, Axel, in particular, embarks upon a journey of self-discovery as memories come to him and he begins to twig to who he might have been. And for a reader, this is a really exciting uh, development. And it's an interesting way to plot a book um, in terms of the plot being not just what's happening to the characters on the inside, but also outside, but what's happening to him on the inside in terms of memories and recovering his own story. Yeah, that part of it is something I'm very familiar with because because many of my past novels were were precisely that. There's, there's a main character who gradually starts to uncover memories that they have perhaps been hiding from. 
Um, so the remains of the day is kind of like that. All right, he doesn't. The the main character, the butler in the remains of the day, doesn't suffer from kind of like amnesia in the way that uh, uh, Axel does. Now I should emphasize, Axel isn't suffering from dementia. It, it, this is something that he's suffering from what everybody else in the story suffers from. This you're young and old. You know, there's been this mist that's been imposed on them from above that makes them forget things, particularly things pertaining to certain kinds of. Um, topics, you know, um, it, it's a controlled amnesia that, that that's been imposed on them. But um, but this idea of a single character exploring his or her memories to try and figure out who the hell they are, how do they assess themselves, to what extent do they want to continue deceiving themselves about the past, to what extent do they want to face everything so that they can come to terms of what they've done in their lives. I mean, this has dominated my most of my earlier books. Uh, and so, yes, that's there in, in the main character, Axel, in this book as well. But th I guess that's almost like, um, that, that, that's almost second nature to me, <laughs> that, that aspect of it. What wasn't so much second nature was to try and extend that whole business about, you know, how how much do I want to remember? How much do I want to forget? Firstly, to, to a relationship. So it's not just within the mind of one person, mm -hmm. but it's really how, how that question plays out in a, in a relationship that's gone on for decades in a marriage. Right, between and, him and Beatrice. Yeah, yeah, and also how it applies to a, to a nation. Um, the bonds that, that might hold a nation together or, make, or, or, or when the bonds break down, you know, civil war and terrible atrocities might break out. A lot of that rests on that question: How, you know, what does this community as a nation wish to remember about what happened a generation back? Do, you know, do, do we want to remember all these terrible things that we did to each other, or do we, for the sake of peaceful coexistence, do we just agree to keep these things buried so that we can move on into the future in some kind of coherent peace? Um, so th those things were new to me. I felt this was slightly new territory to me. The, you know, Axel gradually discovering a past that he's buried. Um, uh, yeah, that, that that kind of thing is almost second nature to me. I've been doing it all my <laughs> writing life. <laughs> well, I, I thought that also, too, early and on in the narrative, you get us asking a, a question that's not often asked in, in books is, which is, who am I? Since there's a narrator telling us this story and kind of stepping in and out of the story and making his presence known and then sliding back and letting, immersing us in the story. And that's an interesting uh, vision to, to add, layer to add to this. I have to conf make a confession here that originally, my original scheme was that, that I was going to play a much bigger part. In fact, not so much, I, I, I put that more clearly, not just the I, but the you mm, mm -hmm. that the narrator is addressing. Um, the passage I read is just a dialogue passage, so, so we don't hear the I, but for quite a lot of the earlier par parts of the book, there is a kind of a tour guide uh, to ancient Britain. And I, I thought uh, th there was a practical sense in which, which that was desirable. You know, People are plunged into this kind of unfamiliar world, not just an ancient world, but a world with kind of supernatural forces. 
it, it'll be comforting to have some sort of guide. So, so the guide is saying, look, I mean, this is what Britain was like. You might be rather surprised to find a few ogres here. You know, so, uh, and it was a, it, there was a practical aspect to it. You know, uh -huh. I thought I'd ease the reader into it. But I did have this um, deeper scheme about the eye because I've always been fascinated by um, the first-person narrator addressing a you in novels. And I've always done it. I think in every every single book I have written, even when it's a complete first-person narration, the narrator would often say you. Um, you, know, you may not know this. Maybe this happened to you. Um, this happens in all of my books. And if anyone's familiar with my past books, they'll, they'll realize pretty soon that this you... Uh, that the narrator comes out with is not really the reader. Maybe the first two or two, three times that the reader might think, oh, I'm being addressed directly. It must become very clear rapidly that's not the case. In, in, in the remains of the day, the you is another servant or butler. You know, the narrator cannot imagine a world beyond his small little parochial world. And, and so he assumes that the, anyone listening to him must be someone who shares a lot of the inside knowledge and, and experiences of, of his world. Kathy in Never Let Me Go imagines that the you she is talking to in that book is another clone like her who has had an experience uh, growing, of growing up and, and is stuck in a fate exactly like hers. And so the effect really, what I like is the effect is that the reader is almost eavesdropping on a conversation between two people in a peculiar world. Um, one is saying to the other, you, 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 you. Uh, and the reader is just kind of, kind of listening in on that. I, this time I, I wanted an I and a you. And now this is not your fault or anybody else's fault if they don't pick up on this because this is something I pulled right back from towards the end of writing this book and I actually pulled out a lot of things because I thought this was going to disrupt the main part of the story but my idea was that the narrator is telling this story to an audience of children but they are the children they are the ghosts of all the children innocent children that have been slaughtered in atrocities and wars throughout history that was the audience that's the you in the book and 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 as I say I do not expect anyone to be able to pick up on that, but that was the original plan. If you actually now look carefully at certain references, particularly towards the end, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, then yeah, the reader can say, "Ah, oh, yes, that that's that's what what's going on. That's who the I is. That's how the you is. Well, the I is some sort of storyteller. The you uh, is an audience of children, you know, the ghosts of dead children killed throughout throughout history." Innocent, innocent kids slaughtered in in wars. Um, that was always my scheme from pretty early on, um, but it's not there in a very strong way now. Well, I thought that for for me as a reader, what that gives the story is um, a kind of presence. We get to see the book from like a little bit of a distance. We're 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 not we're not being addressed. But we get to the book is stepped back, and it does uh, tie in too with the theme of stories in myths and tropes. And let's talk about the boatman because you do so many interesting things with the boatman myth, and this is kind of an Orphaic myth. And you 
tell this story in many different versions in many different ways. Does it have an actual origin in in British lore? Not really. I mean, I I, I think um, I think boatmen figure in in many many um, old tales. You know, ancient. You know, the the, the the ancient boatmen who carry people. You know, uh, over the river uh, to to purgatory or to death. You know. Um, um, it, it, different kinds of boatmen um, uh, have been there all the time. I think surely we all vaguely, you know, recognize that. You know, boatmen are there when you die. <laughs> they take you. I mean, what happens after that varies depending on you know where the the story comes from. Um, you know, some involve purgatory. Some some involve just death. You know, some, some involve some other kind of death. But. Uh, that image of um, the divide between life and and whatever happens afterwards, being a river, and and a ferryman being required, I think is is very deep in all kinds of folklore. So I'm not referring to any particular one. I'm not requiring any special scholarly knowledge of any particular one of those myths. Um, I'm just picking up on what I think is a is a near universal echo. Um, uh, and it's there in a very banal kind of normal way. You know, they, I think quite early on in the story, they they shelter in a Roman villa from a storm, a ruined Roman villa, you know, falling down. And uh, for some peculiar reason, they seem to kind of cross some boundary, and they encounter the other person sheltering in that place is a boatman, and something happens there that uh, that gives them a clue about what they may face um, towards the end of their lives. I think as a as we read this book, one of the things I think that's interesting too are the way that the ties of society are tied into um, memory. In particular, you are talking about uh, the, the acts of atrocity, but we, we have some really interesting characters, and I'd like you to talk about uh, uh, Whiston and... Uh, uh, his his warrior uh, second. Okay, well, Whiston is is from another tribe. He's from, he's one of the the immigrants, right? He's an Anglo-Saxon. He's a he's he's one of the people who've come over from the European mainland, and there are a lot of pockets of settlement of of these people. These are the people who, before long, well, in fact, you know, shortly after my novel closes, mm-hmm. they will take over Britain, and they will become the English. They and then you know they will establish the roots of this language we are speaking in now. The people who were there before Axel and Beatrice's tribe um, are wiped out. There's some kind of ethnic cleansing or genocide. They they disappear. There there's a lot of argument about what happened to them. But yeah, in in my version, yeah, they get some sort of um, terrible genocide is is about to happen. Uh, Whiston, I don't want to give too much away of this story, but he he's. He's actually his mission, if you like, is is to prepare the way for for the wars, for the invasion. But um, he, and and in many ways, he's a kind of a traditional hero type. He's a bit like Beowulf himself, you know. He, mm-hmm. he, he he's a strong guy. But he he likes to fight. Uh, but he he I guess he thinks he is not quite quite uh, what he should be because he has had too much contact as a kind of a somebody sent in advance who's who's had to befriend 
a lot of the community that's going that his his lot are going to wipe out. Um, he's he's got to know his future enemies as as human beings, and he feels as a warrior he's 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 contaminated by compassion, and he he recognizes that he can never quite be the ruthless avenging. Because this this is a lot to do with vengeance about you know what had happened to his tribe a generation back, he cannot really be the vehicle f- for hatred and vengeance that he would like to be, um, and so along the way he he adopts a, a like a protege an apprentice a twelve year old boy, a Saxon boy, uh, and he hopes that uh, this boy, he can train this boy to be the the warrior of hatred that he he Weston cannot be because he he has been contaminated by contact with with the tribe that it's his duty to exterminate you know so so um that's only kind of revealed gradually as we go on but uh, but that that kind of interested me the idea that uh, someone should see compassion as a kind of a weakness um but there's a part of him that perhaps suspect that suspects that it isn't yeah, you know, there's a part of him that suspects that there is something um, too dark about just wanting vengeance, and uh, um, so so he, I, I see him as a yeah conflicted kind of character. He's an example of the dialogue between justice and vengeance. He's he's that in a sense brought to life. Yeah, yeah. Western also you have to remember is a pagan, right? He's a non-Christian. Mm-hmm. The Anglo-Saxons who who came to Britain at that point were not Christian. The indigenous people would have been because the Romans had become Christians and given them Christianity. But and so Winston, one of the things that upsets Winston is the Christian religion. He says at one point, you know, isn't it very convenient that you have invented this God that is infinitely merciful? Uh, isn't that isn't it convenient for people who commit atrocities, who who do ruthless military things? Um, to actually have a invent a god that 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 will forgive you for almost anything, and and he says, well, what kind of a god is that? This Christian god, what's the use of a god that would forgive almost anything? Well, forgive literally forgive everything as long as you you do your penance and 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 sincerely ask for forgiveness. Um, you know, he says, you know, under the you know we pagans, you know, we have our gods, and you may mock our gods, but but if you if you break the rules, you're punished. You know, it gives us some kind of moral discipline. I guess, I, I guess, what interested me here was the idea that maybe there is something about Christianity that that runs through the history of empire building, um, you know, invasion of other people's countries for the advantage of the you know the European Judeo-Christian societies. I mean, um, throughout history, many awful things have been done throughout the globe in the name of uh, civilization and empire. Christianity. Um, um, I do wonder myself if if the, I, the the concept of God, the eternally and infinitely merciful God of Christianity, hasn't made it easier for the Western nations to to do what they have done throughout history. I've been speaking with Kazuo Ishiguro. His new book is The Buried Giant. Thank you for speaking with me, Yesh. Thank you very much. It's, it's great to be back here.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.